Welcome to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. Last week, we talked about the roots of housing discrimination in Tucson and its present-day ramifications. On today's show, we continue our housing series, Finding Home, by talking with people who work in the field of affordable housing every day. First, we step back to remember another aspect of Tucson's housing and neighborhood history. UA Libraries oral historian Angus Anderson brings us a voice involved in the urban renewal movement. By the end of the 1960s, urban renewal had leveled most of Tucson's historic downtown barrio. Families, mostly Mexican-American, were already displaced and their homes and businesses were gone. But the bulldozers did not reach La Placita until the tail end of the renewal project. La Placita, the plaza, gazebo, and surrounding businesses like El Charo, was in many ways the heart of the barrio. Alva Torres, then a young mother, heard about La Placita's impending demolition from a relative. A Mr. Rodolfo Soto. He always loved history, and I loved him. And we were at a family party, and he comes up to me and he says, Albita, you know they're going to knock down the Placita. He said, no, I said, I didn't know that. Yes, he says, and someday they won't even know we were ever here. I couldn't believe that they were going to go into the Placita. It just was beyond my, like, no, you know, they wouldn't do that. And, and it's like we were caught unawares, and I wanted to talk to somebody about it. Alva wanted to see if La Placita could be preserved. She talked to the local press, to city officials, and to other groups charged with historic preservation. But those groups were largely composed of white Tucsonans who did not grow up in the barrio or see the emotional significance of La Placida. You know, the memory of it. It wasn't just that it was Mexican. It was that it was a ba- our baby. I would have fought just as hard as that. They'd been Jewish, Chinese, black, and Indians. And, but we, weren't, we were all, all of that. It was like a, watching somebody kill your children. And some of it should never have happened. And even now, I think about it. Alva and several friends formed La Placita Committee to advocate for preserving the area. They were only partially successful. Broadway was realigned, and most of the buildings surrounding La Placita were raised. But the gazebo and original El Charo building were saved, albeit entombed by the faux Mexican La Placita village. Today, the La Placita village itself has met the wrecking ball, and apartments will soon rise around the remains of the La Placita Torres remembers. But even though the La Placita committee failed to preserve the area, Torres thinks they changed the conversation about preservation in Tucson, and who gets to have a voice at the table? Because somebody even close to me said, well you, well, you didn't accomplish a lot. And I said, okay, but we were the catalyst, because before that there wasn't this going on in Tucson at all, not even teeny weeny busy. Because they don't think it's worth saving, we have to teach them that it is worth saving, because that's what makes Tucson different from all these other cities. You don't want to go to a town where they all look alike. You want to know what that town is offering. You don't want all your children to be identical like robots. This is what makes life life. More about the history of urban renewal can be found in the book La Calle by Tucsonan Lydia Otero. You can hear more oral histories about urban renewal, including an interview with the city's former urban renewal director, Don Laidlaw, on archivetucson.com. Now we turn to our housing roundtable. Maggie Amato Tellez is executive director of the Pima County Community Land Trust, a nonprofit community based organization dedicated to affordable housing. Her group acquires and rehabs foreclosed properties and sells them to low to moderate income Tucsonans. And the thing that makes this difference is that we keep ownership of land 
And uh, when they buy the uh, improvement of the house, they enter into a 99-year ground lease. And so that allowed us to be permanently affordable from one buyer to the next and to be able to reuse and recycle the subsidies. Marcos Ismael is the housing program manager with Pima County. His department manages federal funds from the Department of Housing and Urban Development, as well as the county's own programs. Our housing center also operates as a kind of a one-stop housing referral service center. So we provide services to constituents who call in or walk in uh, seeking information on um, everything from where to find an affordable rental, uh, information on affordable homeownership programs, as well as other programs that we operate. Megan Headings is executive director of Family Housing Resources, a local nonprofit that works with low and moderate income people. They're a HUD certified home ownership counseling agency and offer down payment assistance. And then the second area that we work in is actually running and owning a few multifamily properties. And one of those is a HUD Senior 202 that uh, does provide support for low-income seniors. Another one is just a low-income affordable housing unit. And the third is actually in Benson, Arizona, that supports some of the activities in rural communities. All three came to our studio. I started the discussion by asking Megan Headings if there are enough affordable housing programs to help the community. Well, I, I think that's challenging. There, There's definitely some funding and support out there. Uh, a lot of people actually aren't really aware of what may be available for them. And if you're talking about home ownership, I would say one of the biggest challenges is honestly in being able to utilize the down payment assistance because they aren't able to actually find a home that is maybe in their price point. So even if the funding is available for down payment assistance, the inventory is not there for them to get a home that they can afford. In terms of affordable housing, I would say we really are seeing a huge lack of inventory issues. So there's just not enough either multifamily or single small units available in the price point people need. Marcos and Maggie, the the inventory issue that, that Megan was talking about, that really falls more into your areas. How do we increase the inventory of affordable housing in Tucson, Pima County, Southern Arizona? Well, that, that's a, a tough question. Definitely. You know, <laughs> yeah, especially, you know, we, we see that um, a lot of, so much of the recent development happening seems to be at the high end of the market. So mm -hmm. luxury rental homes, um, you know, there's a big demand for rental, as we know, and so uh, we just don't see enough of the new development, uh, whether it be new construction or um, renovation, you know, that would serve the working class families and lower income families. Um, and there's, you know, is a shortage of programs to help address that. Uh, the biggest one would be the Low Income Housing Tax Credit Program which is administered by the Arizona Department of Housing. But on average, I think, you know, we're getting, we're lucky to get one to two developments funded a year. I think part of it is pay, related so. to sort of um, incentivizing the process that's challenging at this yeah. point in time and competing with that Phoenix market has huge yeah. impacts. Yeah, so, yeah. So, it, it, so in a nutshell, funding. Funding. Yeah. yeah. And there, there needs to be more money um, and actually more uh, 
creative uh, leveraging of funds, sometimes even, you know, at the level of the state legislature where we have to, you know, allow for inclusionary zoning, for instance. Those things in the past have been vetoed where a developer is developing a subdivision and a portion or a percentage of, of, of the houses that he creates has, has to be for low to moderate income households. So yeah, I think in the in the end, it's all about money and also about being creative and, and visionary and partnering mm-hmm. with not just the local government, but banks, yeah. you know, any any kind of CRA requirements, you know, I think it's, it's gonna take that. And I think, if I may, I think it's adding sort of to that collaboration, it really takes the partnership of nonprofits, government, and for-profits to sort of Absolutely. bring in the needed inventory to the area. Yeah. Maggie, you brought up something interesting when a developer is developing a a new community or a new neighborhood, a certain part of it has to be set aside or or can be mandated to be set aside for affordable housing. How do you determine or how do we as a state determine where affordable housing goes? And I'm sure, just as you mentioned, there's a big NIMBY, not in my backyard. It's Mm -hmm. a great idea, but I don't want my neighborhood to be affordable housing. I want foothills dollars, you know, value homes. How do we determine where they go? Oh, that is a really good question. It's funny because we were just having this this conversation with another um, affordable housing partner about talking about, you know, how we're continuing to segregate because we are putting a lot of these affordable home ownership opportunities in low moderate income neighborhoods. So I, I don't have that magic answer, but I, I think it's, it's important that we become creative and collaborative with all of the entities that, that Megan just you know, mentioned, you know, for-profit, non-profit, government. I think we have to be uh, a lot smarter and, and work together. Marcos, when it comes to especially some of the programs you work with, uh, HUD funding to develop affordable housing, what are some examples of housing that's been funded with HUD money? So we recently have had uh, in in this past year uh, two um, new affordable housing developments that were constructed in downtown Tucson. Um, And, you know, downtown Tucson until recently had suffered a lack of new development in general. Uh, so it was nice to see that we, we now have housing in the mix um, and low-income housing at that. On the corner of Broadway and Stone, there's West Point Apartments, uh, which is a low-income housing tax credit program, uh, well, funded by the low-income housing tax credit program predominantly. La Frontera Partners is the owner-developer and it's um, affordable housing for seniors. One block to the west on the corner of Broadway and Church is another affordable housing development. And that one's very interesting because it incorporates uh, a new mid-rise with 75 units on the corner of Broadway and Church. And and then also has the Marist College uh, historic building. Um, I think it's the tallest adobe in the state, three-story adobe that was um, literally crumbling before it was, uh, you know, renovated and converted to affordable housing by the Foundation for Senior Living. Uh, and so there's now eight units of affordable housing in the Marist College, um, and as well as the 75 units um, at Broadway and Church. And then just west of downtown, across the street from our office, 
is um, the West End Station, which is affordable housing for low-income families. All those ones you mentioned are kind of in the core, if you will, of Tucson. So there's good transportation, be it streetcar, bus. Is it a problem for affordable housing that it gets pushed out because downtown is now becoming desirable and therefore pushed away from transportation lines and things like that is that a problem we see that, here oh, yes yeah yeah mm-hmm. that you know that was that was a lot of that was happening um you know some of the incentives the state tied to its low-income ha- tax credit program um you know helped bring these transit-oriented developments to downtown tucson because of the scoring preferences they had for transit-oriented developments that are on uh, a uh like the modern streetcar line or a major bus route so, so you know, we're, we also try and encourage those types of developments. Um, and I think one of the important things is to look at is the home ownership. And so as you, as you get people engaged with home ownership, they have more stability and more um, strength in their neighborhoods. So they're not pushed out when maybe there is uh, new opportunities for landlords to increase rent and things that actually push them farther and farther from transit or inner city activities that happen. Um, but one, one challenge is just the homeowner, um, the single family resident inventory right now is so low that individuals are having to go really far out to find things that are in their in their uh, budget. So areas like Marana is actually seeing more uh, individuals looking in that area and purchasing. I think programs like Maggie's are really important because often they'll continue to provide home ownership opportunities in the s- center of town or in areas that are still needed. Maggie, how long are your homeowners staying in those homes? Yes, they have the 99-year <laughs> land lease, but how long does the average person stay? Our first sales were in 2010, end of 10. And so we are actually, we have an inventory of 89 permanently affordable homes that we acquired and rehabbed uh, over the years. And of those 89, we, as of today, have helped 101 households. So those are 12 resales. So, you know, we're seeing seven, eight years. And so now forecasting forward, we're assuming seven to eight resales every year. We currently have three in escrow. So we'll have, you know, by the end of July, then those 89 homes will have helped 100 and what is that for? Are you acquiring more properties or are you just sticking with the 89 you have? Not that that's an insignificant number. Well, we would love to acquire more. You know, that's part of the challenge. Mm-hmm. And so we are looking at some things right now to acquire some more rentals. We also have 10 affordable rental units that we did, uh, six of them that we actually um, developed ourselves in for, for a fourplex that we rehabbed. So we do have some affordable rental opportunities because we saw a huge need even though our program is actually one of the easier programs to be able to qualify for. There's no down payment. The loan to value is 80% or less, uh, limited out-of-pocket expenses. So it's, it's an, and, and yet we saw many people who are still just not mortgage ready. So we're also offering now housing counseling services just because we were doing it anyway. So What are you all finding when it comes to, Maggie, you use the phrase mortgage ready to get the mortgage, but ready to continue paying. Do you have a problem with people can get in, but then they can't stay in? I think it's important uh, that we our programs have parameters to ensure that we're not setting them up for failure. We need to see an ability for a person to save. 
you know, you own a house now and your air conditioning breaks down and ouch, you know, if you don't have that plan in place. You know, FICO scores, credit scores, that's really a more of a lender-based, um, you know, what they base their approval on. But, you know, debt-to-income ratios, making sure that their income is sufficient to pay for their house and their debt, important to get them on a budget, making sure that they actually know how much they make. How much do they bring home? What are your expenses? And such a big part of that process is actually going through um, how much of their income should go to housing. So part of the affordability is looking at how much of their monthly income goes to housing and it really should not exceed above 30%. And so they might actually qualify for a loan that would put them above that. And that's part of what we do as counselors is help to really encourage them to know and understand what they're getting into and what that potential might look like down the road. If things change, if it's going to put too big of a strain on their monthly income, that it may not be worth it. It may not be the best time for them to actually purchase. Marcus, did you want to jump in? Yes, our down payment assistance program uh, requires that the home buyer attend a home buyer education class with a HUD approved counseling agency. Um, before they start searching for a home, before they start searching for a lender, so they can get educated and learn about, you know, what it takes to become a homeowner, the responsibilities, not just the advantages. I think we all know the advantages of owning a home, but so many people overlook the responsibilities of the maintenance and the upkeep, um, keeping your home insured. And there are statistics to prove that the um, you know, um, home buyers who take the home buyer education class uh, default at a much lower rate than those that don't. We're talking with Maggie Amato Tellez, Marcos Ismael, and Megan Headings, who all work in community housing agencies in Tucson and Pima County. When it comes to helping people get their first home uh, in an affordable way, do any of your organizations? work with businesses that may be trying to relocate or expand so that there's appropriate job opportunities near different affordable housing? So we're, we're new to that housing counseling aspect of this, but definitely historically uh, the city of Tucson, Pima County, and a lot of different nonprofits have done workforce housing initiatives. Uh, I don't know of any right now. But it, it's a good idea, you know, to, to be able to offer an employer, um, edu- you know, to, in, to, to educate their employees on these homeownership opportunities or affordable rental opportunities. It's, it, it could mean the difference, huge difference to this employer as far as uh, turnover, stability, uh, you know, drive time to and from work. So these are important types of partnerships. I don't know, maybe Marcos knows if there's anything in existence or a, I don't know, Megan. You know, I think that's um, an area where we have a gap mm-hmm. compared to some of the larger metropolitan um, cities um, and, and that is um, uh, employer-assisted housing. And mm-hmm. that's something that has been slow to catch on here in Tucson. Mm-hmm. You know, we've been trying to find ways to encourage more employer-assisted housing, but it's very difficult. Right now, the only ones that I'm aware of that have been doing that are the Native American tribes, uh, both Pasquayaki and Tana Autumn Nation have programs to help their employees. 
And I think there has been some um, promising aspects in the last couple of years, but it's honestly because it's become sort of a crisis that people are now talking about it. So even the upcoming presidential election, I think for the first time is really addressing housing and affordability of housing across the U.S. But in Tucson, I think we are also recognizing that something has to change or the dynamics have to change. And so that's it's nice to see that there is actually being some more conversation and more creative ideas around what may be options. Are gentrification and development hurting communities or are they helping them or is it a balance of both? Oh, it's such a complicated one. (laughs) Double-edged sword, I think, you know. You know, I think on, on one level, you know, it's helping communities that haven't seen investment and new development mm-hmm. in their neighborhood. Um, but on the other hand, um, that new development, you know, brings with it, um, you know, an, an increase in the property values, which one might seem on the surface is good for property owners. Um, it's good for an existing property owner, but if, if you know, it, it may not be so good for people who are looking to relocate to that community and and, uh, especially if they're looking for affordable housing it's becoming harder and harder uh, to find affordable housing and in areas that is experiencing um, you know a lot of this new development and for renters I think it also ends up pushing a lot of individuals that may have been renting in those communities pushes them farther out and so one of the issues is how do you essentially get them to have more stability and maybe become homeowners so that they don't eventually get pushed out of that area or the market they want to be in when you talk about home ownership oh everybody always says owning is so much better than renting but i never hear (laughs) why why is it so much better when the air conditioner fails i have to fix it myself or pay someone to fix it i can't just call the landlord so why is it so much better well i don't even think it is it's not better for everyone it really depends it depends on you and in first question is are you ready for home ownership have you prepared for home ownership if you're you know thinking of you know if you're still somewhat young and somewhat mobile and you know you're going to want to move out of tucson don't purchase don't purchase a home i mean it's you're you're not going to recoup your costs and and if and like you know what what megan and i have been discussing which is if if you really do not have a history of saving funds if you don't have that habit because it's a habit you need to think twice. You need to start thinking about that before you even think about home ownership. But I would say it's important to recognize mm-hmm. that the dynamics in the U.S. and I think are still true in our area here is that the vast majority of individuals are not great at saving. They're not great at, at saving and building their own wealth. And so home ownership is typically still the best way for a family or an individual to build wealth over time. And it's usually the largest asset somebody has. Correct. So it's an important aspect of that, and I think it's one that we shouldn't ignore. But also everyone needs to go in with eyes wide open and understand all of the challenges that come with that decision and that it's not just – you're not going to turn around in two or three years and be able to sell with a huge amount of equity in the house, potentially. That doesn't always happen. Yeah, and, and you know, I think the the other end of it is, is um, you know, I think basically there's just been a decrease in demand for home ownership. Mm-hmm. Um, the millennial generation is, you know, um, showing us that, you know, not everybody is looking for the American dream of home ownership. And, you know, majority of the millennials um, don't see home ownership as an advantage. You know, maybe they saw their parents go through foreclosure 
and struggle during the recession, and 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 not just confined to millennials, but um, a lot There's of families that were associated. hurt during the recession, lost their homes, mm-hmm. um, are very hesitant to get back into the market and and would rather rent. And actually, uh, I think we're seeing a lot of individuals now, um, and millennials in particular, because that word's been thrown out, but that have student debt. And so one of the challenges is that they have so much debt that home ownership isn't even an option for yeah. them. And it's actually something point. that we are starting to look at in our organization and starting to launch a new program to also assist with um, student loan debt relief. The housing market is in Tucson finally really recovering from the bubble burst um, earlier. And is that true in the affordable housing market too? Is is the rising tide lifting all boats or is it just lifting it for people who have the money to have a boat? I think it's providing a bigger separation. So those with a boat are rising higher and those that aren't, it's becoming farther and farther, so they're potentially missing an opportunity now that'll never be available to them down the road. And that's something I think we really work hard to make sure that doesn't happen. So we purchased a lot of our, all of our homes during that foreclosure crisis. We got great deals. So these 12, how many people did I say? 12 resales, uh, for the most part, they've all seen some some good equity gains and we're granted we're we're a shared equity program so they're limited to only capturing 25 percent of whatever went up in value plus their initial investment which was their mortgage and so people are walking away between with between 10 and twenty thousand dollars on top of you know five six seven years of really low mortgage payments so that's like that's to me instant equity one of the things that separates Tucson and Phoenix and Tucson's not seeing the the growth in the job market at the same level that Phoenix is and so lower uh, and nationally as well as locally um, wages aren't keeping pace with the increases in the prices either Mm -hmm. whether it be rental Mm -hmm. or for home buyers and home ownership so that is something that is not gotten any better. And in fact, I would argue that it, it's getting worse now, especially with um, um, construction costs rising. Um, you know, there's big labor shortage in the construction industry. And um, and land is another factor. Land costs are going up. All the low-lying fruit has been picked off. And so um, it just makes it that much more challenging. All right, well, all three of you, thanks so much for sitting down with us. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. That was Maggie Amato Tellez, Marcos Ismael, and Megan Headings, who all work in community housing agencies in Tucson and Pima County. Now we turn to the viewpoint from one specific community. Tucson resident Sadie Shaw is a U of A student in government and public policy. She's also an artist focused on video installation and performance art. She has many childhood memories in the Sugar Hill neighborhood near Grant and Stone. Her work creating a mural in the neighborhood led to her becoming president of that neighborhood's association. She shared her view on how the historically black neighborhood is changing. My first order of business when I became president was getting the neighborhood name changed from Northwest Neighborhood to Sugar Hill Neighborhood um, to reflect the historic name that the residents have been calling it since, since back in the day in the 50s. A lot of people had kind of reservations about changing the name to Sugar Hill because of connotations that kind of reflect drugs or or whatever, which didn't really 
it wasn't why Sugar Hill was called Sugar Hill. What I've heard most is that it's supposed to reflect um, how Sugar Hill was where the affluent or kind of more prosperous black residents of Tucson would stay. There were doctors, there were lawyers, um, school principals, teachers, dentists, and a lot of military families in Sugar Hill. So that's sort of what the name represents to, to my family and to a lot of other families. Today, Sugar Hill is a lot different from, I say I would say it's golden days. Um, there's a lot of rentals now before it was definitely like a family neighborhood and now with gentrification that I believe has been pushed by the University of Arizona with the students the percentage of of the historic residents of of black residents in, in Sugar Hill has definitely gone down quite a bit I mean for me or anyone trying to find a home in Sugar Hill it's really difficult because those new student housing complexes that started probably in the early 2000s. They just changed the whole character of the neighborhood. They raised the property values especially, and and also they don't rent to, to people like me. Even though I'm, I'm a student at the university, you know, they don't want to rent to me because I have a child. That's been my experience. And so it's really frustrating for me trying to stay in my community and I know for others who you know had family in the neighborhood and want to stay in there it's it's really tough because homes are going for like 280,000 now where before you know it was definitely affordable and what there is available it's pretty like a slum any any part that is affordable it's a place where I wouldn't want to rent so the mural I worked on was a memorial to my late cousin, Antonio Wiggum. He passed away around Christmas in 2017. And when he passed away, it was really difficult. Just because, I mean, he was so, he was a huge part of my life. Um, he was like a father to me. And he shared so much about my family's history with me. And at the beginning, it wasn't really about the neighborhood. It was just about me and my personal pain. But once I, it, I got it on the wall, I realized, you know, that there's a lot of people in the neighborhood who feel like me, who feel disenfranchised, who want to see themselves in the artwork, and they want to see themselves around the neighborhood in leadership positions. They want Sugar Hill to, to be what it used to be. Just being in a place where where you feel like you belong and you know, your family has belonged there and people have memories of you and memories of your family. And and that's really why I kind of decided to, to take on that role as president, even though I didn't feel qualified at the time. I just wanted people to kind of feel like they could hold space in their neighborhood again. Sadie Shaw has started an oral history project to collect the stories of historic Sugar Hill residents since many are passing away. Here's an excerpt of one of them, a man named Kevin Woodard. My family was the first ones to move into this neighborhood, and I was in 53. And then, then they start letting blacks come into this neighborhood. There's a thing, I can't think of it's called redlining, where they wouldn't let you buy property in this neighborhood. 
and for the longest, you could you could only buy property. I think all the way up to Seneca, and all the way to Drachman, and that was the only area they would let you buy. And all the other ones were, was a redlining. My grandfather worked for the railroad. My grandfather was really a, a very good worker because he was with the railroad over 60 years. He had started when he was a little kid, and he um, owned some property that the city was going to build a road through. So they gave him enough money where he couldn't be stopped, basically, because he had the money to, to buy the property. He wanted a better life for his children. He had 11 kids, so he was trying to get a, where they could get a better opportunity and better schooling. Find a link to all of the Sugar Hill Oral Histories on our website. And that's the buzz for this week. This episode wraps up Finding Home, AZPM's week-long series on housing. You can find all those stories and all of our episodes on our website, news.azpm.org. There are many among us working to reclaim, strengthen, and build communities all across Tucson, and we want to hear those stories. In July, we'll be hosting a live event focused on gentrification and neighborhood change in Tucson. We want your thoughts. Call 520-621-5999 and leave us a voicemail about how your neighborhood has changed and how that's affected you. Once again, that number is 520-621-5999. Ariana Brocious produced and edited the show. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer. Andrea Kelly is the news director. And our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.